0: And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. You guys doing well? Excellent. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 14 through all the way to 36. Instead of 32, you got on your notes there. All the way to 36. You can correct that. Certainty in a World of Doubt, Power to Change is the title of this weekend's message. Also grab your sermon notes out there. On the top of the sermon notes, part of the intro, one of the biggest obstacles to people coming to Christianity is that they think that they already know what it is all about. You talk to people about Christianity, they go, oh yeah, I've heard it before, or I already know what it's about, or and most people don't. They don't know what it's about. And in fact, non-Christians will typically hear gospel presentations as appeals to moralism, appeals to moralism unless we show them the stunning difference, the stunning difference between moralism and, and Christianity or the gospel. You see, Christianity isn't isn't a morally restrained will. It's not a morally restrained will, that's moralism, but it's a supernaturally transformed heart. That's, that's the gospel. I shared with you this chart, kind of this comparison chart a few weeks ago. The difference between moralism, antinomianism and the gospel, see that on your notes? Let me, let me walk you through that. That's really important for you to know the difference. You need to know the difference between the three of these. Moralism, or another word for that would be legalism. I obey, therefore God accepts me. Most people would define Christianity right there. Most non-believers would even say, okay, yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it, Christianity, I gotta get my act together, I gotta start changing my life, I gotta go through the list and check the boxes on the list, and then God will accept me and everything will be cool. No, 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 that's that's moralism. That's legalism. I obey, therefore God accepts me. And then the, uh, the opposite of that, the other extreme would be antinomianism, liberalism, or you could also call it cheap grace. God accepts me. He loves everybody. Therefore, I don't really have to obey. I can kind of live however I I please. Or, yeah, I do struggle, but it's not that big of a deal. And and typically, this one, antinomianism, um, plays down the indispensable and costly sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and also plays down our sinfulness. We tend to minimize our sinfulness in that. By the way, moralism and antinomianism are alive and well here in good old God bless America. You can hear this, either one of those, or a combination of both of those being taught in many American pulpits today, this morning. You need to be smart enough to be able to make a distinction between the two. Because I'll tell you, it's really appealing to hear moralism taught. It, it, it attracts the masses. There are many big churches built on moralism because it's, it's motivational. It's inspirational. You can do it. it. It's very self-help and how-to. Antinomianism, all about the love of God, which is good, but it's minus the truth our sinfulness, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The gospel is this. God accepts me in Christ, therefore I want to obey. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change. There's going to be transformation happen in my life. Now, before we pray, everybody look up here just for a minute. This is what you've got to understand as it relates to the difference between these three. Everybody look up here. You cannot, you cannot encounter the creator and the sustainer of the universe and understand what He's done for you and remain the same, it will transform your life. When you understand that the creator of the universe loves you, adores you, He gave His life for you to reconcile you to the Father once and for all, to redeem you, to restore your life, oh my goodness, There's nothing quite like that. When you have that kind of an encounter, it transforms your life. You want to obey Him. You want to live for His glory. And that's the gospel message. It transforms you from the inside out. That's what we're going to look at today. So you can take a look at the notes there. You'll see, this is a hard, this is really a hard uh, text. And you'll see as we read through it, and as I unpack it, but this is really about the power to change. How do we change? How does God change us? What's the difference between the gospel, gospel change and moralism change? And so, two kingdoms at war, we'll look at that, and then we're gonna talk about Satan's strategy, which is moralism, self-salvation, and then God's strategy, which is the gospel, God is our salvation, and what that looks like. So, here we go, let's pray. And then we'll read our notes, or read our text and unpack our notes here this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? So, God, we love you. Oh, my goodness. We love spending time with you. We love studying your Word. We thank you that you are here to meet with us this morning. It is simply stunning that through the finished work of Christ on the cross that not only did He purchase our forgiveness of sins, I mean, that in itself is, is, is a lot, but also He purchased our ticket to heaven but he 's also purchased every blessing, every answer to prayer we will ever receive. Yet yet we confess that the, the default mode of our hearts is moralism, that our expectation of your blessing depends on how well we feel we 're living the Christian life, which tends to drive us either into pride or despair. So help us to see more clearly that your presence and approval does not come to us in response to our changed lives. Our changed lives comes in response to your presence and approval by grace through our faith in the costly and sacrificial love of our Savior Jesus. We pray these things in his glorious and beautiful name and everyone said, amen. So let me work through the text. I'll talk a little bit uh, through this, <clears throat> give you a little explanation, a couple of key things I want to point out to you. Luke chapter <clears throat> eleven verse fourteen. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute, and when the demon had gone out, the mute had gone out. The mute man spoke, and the people marvelled. But some of them said, "He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons." While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and divided, a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For, for you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Stop there just for a minute. I mean, what is he doing? He's, he's, he's rationalizing with him. He's saying, think about this for a minute. So, so you're telling me that I'm casting out demons by Satan? That doesn't make any sense. Why would Satan cast out Satan? He's working against himself. doesn't make any sense. And then he challenges them on on who they're casting out. He says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. So the Pharisees, these religious leaders, were casting out demons also. They were helping people to get their lives in order and working things out for them and helping them with their lives. And he says, so, okay, so you're telling me I'm from Satan, but where, what's, what's your power to change? Where does that come from? Why are you doing it? So he's challenging them. And then he defines for us the power that he has. This is this is amazing. Verse 20, he says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, I, I love that. He's, it's a great picture. The finger of God, just a flick of finger, God can th- throw that demon out of this guy's life. No big deal. Finger of God, demons gone. This is the kingdom of God. He's just saying, this is the kingdom of God. This is what God is all about. This is the Christian life. This is what God has come to do. I love it. And then he defines for us, after this, verses 21 and 22, really what needs to happen if we're gonna experience life change. And he speaks in a kind of a metaphorical way. So let me ask you this question. How many here have a few things, you got a a few things on your list that you'd like to change in your life? Show of hands, show of hands. Okay, there's quite a number of you. I'm not talking about the people next to you, sitting next to you, that you have a few things for them. I mean, I know that my wife has a couple things on her list for me that she would like to have changed, and I do for her also. But I'm not talking about that. We're not talking about other people in our lives. We're talking about us. How can I change? How can I overcome the obstacles in my life? How can I become a different person? He's gonna define that for us. And he says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are saved. So it's almost speaking metaphorically here in a sense that so our lives would be like a palace. There's a strong man that guards our palace. The strong man would be really the values that we have, those things that are really important to us. That would be the strong man in our lives. We do what we do because those are the things that we value. So how do I stop doing those things so that I can do other things that are probably more valuable? Well, that's that's what he's saying here. He says, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So he's speaking metaphorically, talking about you have to have values that are much greater than the values you embrace that come into your life that overcome those lesser values with greater values, so to speak. you got to have things that are more important to you than the things that you're currently embracing, and you have to exchange. You have to put off the old and, and begin to embrace the brand new that, that God has for us. And that's basically what he did in this guy's life that was demon-possessed someone greater, Jesus, came into his life and kicked the old man out, and now this guy is a new man. And what's interesting here, now look at verse 23, so whoever is not with me is against me, whoever does not gather with me scatters. So he's just drawing, drawing the line in the sand. We'll get to that. Some of this is still going to be hard to understand until we walk through the notes, so hang in there with me. And then he gets into something that's really even that much harder to understand. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. So so the picture here, it's, it's a bit of an analogy. You just say, okay, okay, okay. Uh, so you guys are able to help people get their lives in order, and you're able to chase off the demons, so to speak, and, and when that demon goes out, it comes back and in verse 25, and when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Yeah, you've been able to overcome some great obstacles in your life, and yet there's almost this area of your life, there's still neutrality because you haven't come to Christ. It says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. It kind of goes back, that's part of the context. And he says, then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they will enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. What? What? What in the world's going on? Well, this guy got his life in order, and yet, because he didn't come to Christ, he's worse off in the long run than what he was before. It's called moralism, and that's where the religious leaders are. Religion and moralism will keep you from Christ, is what he's saying here, and you're worse off. You might have your act together, you might look really good on the outside, things are working for you, but in the long run, you're worse off. Now, he goes on in, in this story, verse 27, and as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And he said, blessed, Rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And that's typical to our culture today is like we say, oh, blessed, you, you're so blessed because you have such a great career and you have a great family and you have all these things and you've really got your life in order. And he goes, no, 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 that's not the people that are blessed. The people that are blessed that are those that know that know me, that are obeying my word, that have a relationship with the God of the galaxies. That's the ones that are truly Blessed. And then he goes on and gives us the sign of Jonah, which is really another analogy of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what accomplished our reconciliation to the Father, that that's what has redeemed our lives, all that Jesus has done for us on the cross. He died in our place for our sins to reconcile us to the Father. And so he uses this kind of metaphor here to help us understand that, the sign of Jonah, And when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. You start thinking, wait a minute, they're wicked because they're seeking a sign? Well, wait, wait, wait. You need to understand that there was no sign that they would be pleased with. They weren't actually seeking a sign. I've I've talked about this in the past, is that doubt will ask honest questions. It's based on humility. But unbelief refuses to hear the answers. It's based on pride. They have unbelief. It doesn't matter what they do. There's plenty of evidence giving validity and veracity to the reality that this is the Son of God in person, and they refuse to hear it. See, and that's moralism. Moralism will keep you from seeing Jesus and really understanding that you need Him. And so, this is what he's, he's calling them on this. He's, as I said, he drew the line in the sand, now he's going to call them on, on their unbelief. And he said, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And then he says, for as Jonah became a sign to the people in Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. I mean, so look how far she went. I mean, she was seeking out wisdom and she came to Solomon and he's just basically saying to them, you guys aren't seeking out wisdom. You don't really want to know. You don't have a heart of humility that's seeking the truth. You've already made up your mind. You have unbelief. You're resistant. And so, so he says in this, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Who's he talking about there? Himself. Yeah, he's talking about himself. There's someone greater than Solomon here, and you're not seeking out the truth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. I'm here. I'm here, flesh and blood. I'm the creator, sustainer of the earth. I'm here in human form, and you refuse to see me. Now, the next section... Verses 33 through 36 is really talking about when we give our lives to Christ, it transforms us, and, and basically there's a light of the glory of the gospel of Christ that begins to radiate from our lives. It's really kind of the contrast between I'm going to either live a life that's God-glorifying and God-centered, or it's going to be very self-centered. Moralism is about self-centeredness. And so, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. So, when you encounter Christ, when you know all of the gospel, man, you're going to want the world to know. You want everybody to experience what you're experiencing. Your eye is the lamp of your body. So, he says it's going to change your perspective and how you see life. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. I mean, it changes the way you do life. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Your perspective is different. If if life's all about you, self-centeredness, it's going to change you. It's going to be darkness. It's going to throw you into a lot of pride and pity parties and just all kinds of trauma that's going to happen there. But he says but when your life is about Christ, and you're going to see this in our study and in our outline, there's a light that's shining in you and through you. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. This is the word of the Lord. Whoa! Heavy duty. You guys ready? Let's do this. You guys ready? Okay, okay. How about over here? You guys ready? Ready? Okay, get your notes out because here's, here's where we go. Two kingdoms at war, verses 14 through 23. Number one, through the fall of mankind, the kingdom of Satan gained dominion. There's your first fill in the blank. Through the fall of mankind, the kingdom of Satan gained dominion over this world limited by God's sovereignty, so, what's, why, is, why do we have the mess that we have on this planet, all the sin and suffering? Right there, I just explained it to you, much more detail. I gave you a ton of verses. You're going to have to study that out on your own. If you want to know a little bit about this demonic side, you're going to need to go back to our archives. In fact, in this series, Certainty in a World of Doubt, back in February 26 of this year, uh, we looked at Luke 3. Chapter four, verses 31 through 44, we called it the dark side. I go into more detail about this whole dark side of of the demonic activity, spiritual warfare. You'll need to study that. I love what Johnny Erickson Tata says in her book When God Weeps, it's a book on sin and suffering, and she says that God controls evil, otherwise evil would be out of control. She also says something that's quite profound in that book, she says that God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. So he he allows us to make choices and with those choices there are consequences, and obviously the consequences in the fall is sin and suffering, and yet he restrains it and he uses it for our good in his glory. And we talk a lot about that here. We have a really strong theology on suffering and sin and understanding how God uses those things in our life. I'm not going to spend any more time on that, but that's the first point you need to understand. Through the fall of mankind, the kingdom of Satan gained dominion over this world limited by God's sovereignty. Number two on your notes, the kingdom of God has come to plunder the kingdom of Satan. Now, keep your Bibles open. I'm going to refer back to the text, verses 20 through 22. He says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, finger of God, just a flick of the finger, boom, he comes in, throws the demon out. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. That's exactly what Jesus is showing us here. The kingdom of God has come to plunder the kingdom of Satan. And and by the way, the gospel is from cover to cover in the Bible, and it starts all the way at the front end of the Bible in Genesis chapter three with the fall of mankind. When Adam and Eve thought that they were smarter than God, that God was holding out on them, they began to make choices that were outside of God's will, and it created all sorts of trauma, all kinds of problems. That's why we have the sin and suffering of this day. And so, God comes in to the situation, and He says, well, this place is cursed now because you've rebelled against me. And He places a curse upon the serpent. And in fact, we have the very first gospel message found in chapter 3, verse 15 of of Genesis. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. Anybody familiar with that word? The first gospel... The first gospel, and you'll understand it when I say it because this is what God said to the serpent. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Do you hear what he's saying? It's absolutely beautiful because it's talking about the cross that the enemy thought that he could bring the Savior down through his death, burial, but on the third day, he resurrected, conquering sin, Satan, hell, death for all of us. Pretty spectacular, but that's mentioned in Genesis 3, verse 15. Right from the get-go, when we screwed this whole thing up, God steps in. It says, I'm gonna redeem you. I'm gonna rescue you. I'm gonna send a savior. He's gonna come after you because I love you. It's, it's amazing, absolutely amazing. So we see this throughout the, the scriptures. And then verse uh, uh, number three on your notes, point number three, two kingdoms at war. Both kingdoms are recruiting citizens. There's no neutral ground. So there's two kingdoms, only two kingdoms on this planet. And I know, I know what I'm gonna say is not it's not American, PC, politically correct, but I'm just I'm shooting straight with you, we always do here. I'm just telling you, the Bible's clear. I'm just delivering the mail, okay? The one that says it is Jesus. When he says in verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters, he's drawn the line in the sand. You're either on my team or you're on the wrong team. You're on the other team. There's only two teams. It's either the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. Kingdom of God, kingdom of Satan. You're either on one team or the other. You yeah, haven't, yeah, wait, wait, wait. I haven't chosen yet. Yeah, you have. You already have. By default, you are on the kingdom of darkness. You were born into this world as a sinner. By nature and by choice, you are on his team, and Christ came to redeem us, to get us off of his team back onto his team to become a child of God, and you must put your faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, it's even in the first of the top 10 lists, top 10 commandments. We've been looking at that through our New City Catechism. It's even in that very first one where it says, you shall have no other gods before me. You'll notice there's not a third option. There's only two options. You'll either serve the one and true living God or you'll have your own God. Everybody's gonna have a God. It's not like you're gonna have this neutral zone where well, I don't really have a God. No, you have a God, okay? Don't argue with me. The Bible says. The Bible says you have a God. You will have a God. You know you have a God, whether you want to call it a God or not, you have to live for something. You just can't exist. There's some reason why you exist. There's a reason why you got out of bed in the morning this morning. I know I'm still trying to figure out what that reason is. Is that what some of you are thinking? Well, hopefully you've got some sort of reason. There's some sort of reason why you exist. Otherwise, you don't, you're depressed. You're gonna put a bullet in your head. You're, you're not gonna do well in life, but, but ultimately there will be something at the center of your life. If it's not the true and living God and his purpose, it will be something else. Because we were created to be worshipers. We were created to put God at the center of our lives. If we don't put him, we will put something else at the center of our life. That's why he says both kingdoms are recruiting. There's no neutral ground. Here's the next one, number four. Just because something works, it doesn't make it true. Now we get into some heavy theology and really an understanding about these two kingdoms. So just because something works doesn't make it true. Now you need to really track with me here as I walk through the, 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 the rationale of this text and how it applies to this point here. Verse 19, he says, by whom do your sons cast them out? So the Pharisees were helping people to get their lives in order. They were benefiting people's lives. And and then we noticed in verse 21 through 22, I said this is how life change happens, that it's it's really the explosive power of a new affection. Let me give you some illustrations. I love what St. Augustine says, the key to change is not the the acts of the will, but the loves of the heart. If you wanna change your life, you're not gonna do it by trying harder. Acts of the will, it's gonna be, you gotta change the loves of your heart. It goes back to what I was saying before. You've gotta have something that you value that's more important than what you're currently valuing. And let me me give you some examples of that. That's why you're able to see, and I've seen people overcome alcohol, I've seen people overcome alcohol abuse, they're alcoholics, only to become workaholics, or athletic-aholics, I guess, I don't know how to say that, but whatever. You guys know what I'm talking about? To where they just exchange one addiction for another addiction. And it's because this addiction is more important to them than the other addictions. And that's, so they, all they did was exchange addictions. They never really came to Christ, they just exchanged addictions. Or I've seen people overcome workaholism because of their value of their family. And, no, I need to put more emphasis on my family. And those are, and, and, and those are, those are good, those, those can be good ways of trying to work through the changes. Uh, I mean, for instance, let me give you an illustration here. How many, uh, how many here, show of hands, work out? You work out regularly, you got a kind of program? Okay, there's like four of us in here. Okay, so let me describe to you what working out is. You know what working out is? You like, you pick up weights and you do repetitions and you breathe real hard, you get really sweaty. And you might even get on a bike and you pedal like crazy. You really don't don't go anywhere, especially if it's a stationary bike, just And some of you are going, why would you ever want to do that? Because it was just a workout this morning, just coming to church, just getting in the car 150 out there and I'm just, I'm breaking a sweat, just waking up that's a workout. Well, it's because you're out of shape. That's the reason why that was such a workout. (laughs) Oh, sorry about that. But okay. So, okay, we are going somewhere with this point, okay? So hang in there with me. So, So the reason why people work out is because they value feeling better and their physical condition and giving them longevity. There's a number of values that they value that more than just being lazy. Sorry. Or just, or just the comfort of not working out or whatever that might be. I mean, what, what is it? There's a value. It's a value system. So this, so, this strong man of laziness or comfort or don't have time is overcome by the, this, the other strong man that comes in and says, no, this is more valuable. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make time. I'm going to make this a priority in my life. See, that's what he's talking about there. That's how change happens in our lives. Something becomes a value. If it it doesn't become a value, it's not going to last. You're not going to keep working out. Or you're not going to keep doing those things. It's not going to bring the lasting change. And uh, it's interesting, he says in verse 25, back to our text, when the unclean spirit returns to the house swept and put in order. So what he's talking about there, when he gives us that illustration, it's really fascinating because he's not talking about that he brought change to this person's life. This is a person that's kind of in this neutral zone, so to speak. There's no neutrality. But he's, he's brought about a certain level of change in his life, and yet he didn't come to Christ. And now he's even more vulnerable, and there's seven other demons that come into him, and, and the last state of that person is worse than, than the first, Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man that leads to destruction. Let me go back to my point. Just because something works doesn't make it true. I love the Bible because it's not reductionistic. Human problems are really complex. The Bible makes that very clear. I talked about that last weekend when it came to anxiety. We are multidimensional image bearers of God. Body, soul, spirit all plays into our anxiety when we're struggling with anxiety. You can help someone physically through rest and diet and exercise and, and give some relief to their anxiety. You can help them out socially through accountability and support and encouragement. You can help them out volitionally through, for them to live more disciplined life. There are all sorts of ways for helping people with their problems. Any variety of groups can produce people who have changed lives. I've heard the testimonies of many of the cult groups in America today where the people get up in front of their group and they have tears and talk about, ever since I committed my life to this group or to the theology of this group, my life has never been the same, tears. They've experienced life change. Let me say it again. Just because something works doesn't make it true. I hear this all the time, well, if it works for them, that's scary. Just because it works, it doesn't make it true. If you use any other way than Christ, you'll be worse off than before. That's the point that Jesus is making. See, the root lie is that we are in charge and really don't need God. That's the lie so I get all my ducks in a row, everything's working out good for me, I can have a measure of success. Yeah, you can overcome the, the, the workaholism, the alcoholism, the struggles in your life, have a better marriage, and, and all of that through moralism, but listen to me, you will never ever experience the freedom and the satisfaction that only comes through Jesus Christ. And even if you gain the whole world, you have a lot of success because you're a hard worker and you put it all together. You're a self-made man or woman. And you do that and you live out your whole life, you still have an eternity to face and you will face the creator and give an account of your life and you will have hell to pay because you rejected Him and you did life your own way. You were created by Him. You are sustained by Him, and He came to redeem you. You don't want to thumb your nose at Him. Come to Him, why wouldn't you? It doesn't make sense to me that anybody would reject God and what He has for us, and that's the point that he's trying to get at here. It's interesting, the society that we live in is that we, 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 treat, the, we treat the pain before knowing why, why we have the pain. We deal with our symptoms rather than the cause of those symptoms. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? So, so I got a headache, I'll just take some ibuprofen. Well, why are you getting headaches every day? And Why do you keep taking ibuprofen? Why don't you sit down and try to figure out what the heck, what's the, what's the root cause? Don't just mask that pain. You're just dealing with the symptoms. Could it be, could it be the heat? <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe you're high, uh, dehydrated. Maybe it's sleep deprivation. Maybe it's stress. Do you see any patterns in your life? So there's some, there's some root causes. There's some root causes. And, and that's our culture. That's our culture. In fact, I, I've heard messages from pulpits in America that give you self-help that can give you a measure of success, but it doesn't take you to the root of your problem. It's just giving you an an ibuprofen, and it it works well for a while. But that's a, you're a ticking time bomb, because you haven't gotten to the root of the issue. You've gotta get down to the root. What's going on? Why are we here? You can even read magazine articles that can tell you how to deal with anxiety. And yet, those magazine articles, unless they're Christian, and I've seen even many Christians that don't do this, they won't take you back to, why am I here? What is the ex- my existence? What's the root cause of my life? Why? And, and, and you've got to get down to that bedrock and begin to understand that. We're too often, like, uh, like some of us, that when we start hearing, a, 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 you know, our, our car starts making noise, we just turn the radio up a little bit louder, Okay. I don't know what that is, but I'm not even going to pay attention to it because this music is really good right now. Well, you're going to be stranded somewhere because you're not paying attention to the noise that's clattering on the inside of your life. And uh, Christianity is not true because it works, it works because it's true. He says, By the finger of God, verse 23 If you don't gather to me, you'll be scattered. You're going to be scattered. going to be scattered if you don't come to Christ. It's not a threat. That's just reality. That's just how He created us. We're created in the image of God, image bearers of God. We were created to worship God, to put Him at the center of our life. That's how we we work best. And uh, really, Jesus is saying, I'm the only one that can bind the strong man and give you change thoroughly and permanently. If you are not possessed by Christ, something else will possess you. And anything that possesses you will ultimately drive you crazy. And if Christ possesses you, he will drive you sane. You will never be more fulfilled and satisfied and free than when you are fully devoted to him. That's, that's what he's wanting us to understand. See, morality, I mean, let me ask you this question. Is morality more dangerous than immorality? What do you guys think? Is morality more dangerous than immorality? I I think Jesus is kind of making a point, and I think we see this through the New Testament. But uh, Reformation, morality without regeneration, is dangerous. Reformation without regeneration, without coming to Christ and having him transform your life. Remember what I said at the front end of this? Christianity isn't a morally restrained will, moralism, but a supernaturally transformed heart. It's the gospel. And so, reformation without regeneration is dangerous. It's what kept the Pharisees from receiving Christ. They couldn't see the big E on the eye chart. You know what the big E is? Have you ever seen that? If you can't see that, then you're blind, okay? You need help. I mean the big E is like the big the big one the big E Jesus is here and they can't see him They need eyes to see they need spiritual eyes it's a spiritual it's supernatural God needs to work in their life And so that kept them from receiving Christ Matthew 21:31 then Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day who were very moral looked like they had it all together on the outside By the way, when we say the word Pharisee, it's very negative to them, it was very positive. These these folks have it together. And this is what Jesus said to them. I tell you the truth, this is Matthew 21, 31. I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. That's heavy. So, let's look at the contrast. Satan's strategy, moralism, get ready to write Here we go. Moralism, self-salvation, based on verses 24 through 26. Next week, we're going to talk about the woes, woes to the Pharisee, and that's uh, verses 37 through 54. We're going to look into what they were about even more so. But there are two ways of self-salvation. Moralism is about self-salvation. Two ways of self-salvation, moral conformity and self-discovery. That's the next fill in the blank on your notes. Moral conformity, self-discovery. Best example of this is found in the prodigal son's story found in the 15th chapter of Luke. You guys familiar with that story? Remember the two sons? One took the inheritance and went off and spent it on prostitutes wild living? That one, that one would be the self-discovery. I don't need dad, don't need the farm. I got my inheritance, I'm gonna do my own thing. I'll break the rules or I'll make up my own rules. That's one way that people live here in America or throughout the world. The other way would be moral conformity. I'll keep all the rules. I'll earn it. I'll achieve it. That's the elder brother. He left the father without leaving the farm. He was holier than thou, self-righteous. That's the best example of that. Those are the two ways that we do the self-salvation gig. So, moral conformity is is known as the conservative side, and this is what it sounds like. The good people like us are in, and the bad people who are the real problem with the world are out. That was the elder brother's attitude. That's the elder brother attitude that we see even in America today. And then the self-discovery, which would be more of the liberal side, this is their kind of... Their mantra, their attitude is that the open-minded and the tolerant people are in and the bigoted, narrow-minded people who are the real problem with the world are out. That's, that's prevalent. Oh, oh, by the way, those folks are just as sanctimonious and self-righteous as, as the moral conformity conservative people. They have their standard that they live by. And if people don't live up to their standard, just as the moral conformity people have their standard, it's moralism. Here's the next point in your notes. So same strategy, moralism, self-salvation, two ways, moral conformity, self-discovery. Number two, it is life change. It's moral virtuous behavior. Whatever your standard might be motivated by pride and or fear. This is big. You got to get this. This is important. Now, I'm not telling you anything new here. It's hot out there. And since it has gotten hot, and this is typical here in the desert, when it gets hot, women wear less clothes. And when women wear less clothes, guys do more rubber necking. You guys tracking with me? You guys know what I mean? You guys don't even want to admit any of this, do you? (laughs) Did he just say what I thought he said? Some of you just woke up. Yeah, guys are like, whoa. And so I'll find myself watching the guys, watching the girls, because it's so crazy how, it, you know, you think, man, that, that guy's about to break his neck watching her. Now, how would you motivate, if, you know, if you're a Christian guy, how would you motivate someone to, to maybe not, not do that? How do you guys deal with that? I know how I deal with it because I'm a red-blooded American male who struggles with that too. I'm just as tempted. So how do I deal with that? So I, I could use pride and I could say to us guys, by the way, this is kind of a guy problem, though there are some girls that probably struggle with this too. The gals have their own set of issues. Believe me, they have issues. And uh, okay, I said that, just, I said it jokingly. Uh, Well, I'm just saying that guys have issues, girls have issues. We all have issues, okay? So so what motivates your good behavior? That's all I'm saying. I'm just giving you an example. What motivates your good behavior? Whether it's serving in ministry, dropping money in the box, opening your home to a small group, helping your neighbor, helping an elderly lady across the street, what motivates you? I'm saying that moralism is motivated by pride, which you don't want to be like those kind of guys who objectify women, those scum. In fact, I, I noticed here recently, I don't know why I would notice it, but probably part of my issues as as guys is that the guy, a guy was wearing a Marilyn Monroe, you know, picture on her, and it was pretty much soft porn. And then I saw another guy with two gals that was somewhat soft porn on the front of their t-shirt. So, I could just say, that's, you're objectifying women. You're just turning women into just a, just a piece of, you know, someone to be used, and that's what it means to objectify. And you scumbag, why would you do that? That's pride. You don't want to be like all those guys that do that. That's pride. That's, that's moralism. Or you could use fear, which says, you'll get caught, your wife will catch you, your girlfriend will find out, God will get you. Now, I don't rubberneck because I'm afraid of my wife, and that she will hurt me in some way. Which she could, and she can, and she has. <laughs> okay, okay. She has hurt me. But I, I, it's not why I don't do that. And I certainly want to, I don't want to dishonor her. That would be certainly dishonoring to her, but it's something much more bedrock than that. Because if it's if it's just to not dishonor her, it will only be when she's around because when she's not around, then see, this is extrinsic motivation. It's fear and pride motivation. It's external. As long as she's around, I'm not going to do it. But when she's around, but I don't ever know when she's around, so I better be careful. She could have cameras out there. Oh, what am I going to do? Well, that's no kind of motivation. That's called moralism. Pride and fear. In fact, look at the next point. It does not root out the fundamental evil of the human heart, which is self-centeredness. That's motivated out of self-centeredness because it's about you. You haven't gone deep enough into your heart, into the bedrock of why or why not. Fear and pride can restrain the heart, but it doesn't change the heart. So this is extrinsic motivation. This is the gun to the head. This is the gun to the head kind of motivation. Next point on your notes, number four. In fact, it is self-centeredness that motivates the changed good behavior, which is a house of cards. And I call it a house of cards because when it no longer pays to be good, you'll give in to temptation. When when the gun's no longer there, when the people aren't watching, this is why major ministries and even politicians crash and burn. All of a sudden you find out, he was doing what? He's picking up prostitutes? What is that all about? He was like the moral majority dude. He was like really into the whole morality and he really preached that and all that. And he's, what is that about? Because it was moralism. It was moral. It's extrinsic motivation. It was motivated out of fear and pride. It's based on self-centeredness. By the way, if you were to come to me and ask me to help you with your relational skills in your marriage relationship, I could sit down and teach you some relational skills. I could teach you communication, conflict resolution, and a number of other skills. But if I don't help you to deal with what's fundamentally wrong with all of us, and that's our self-centeredness, all you're going to do is take those skills and work them to your advantage. You're going to be self-centered in your communication and conflict resolution. I had great conflict and communication skills, though I never dealt with my fundamentally self centeredness. And man, I knew how to manipulate and control my wife. I needed to have a changed heart. You do too. See, it's the difference between a genuinely loving person and a person who wants to be seen as loving. See, self-centeredness, you just want to be seen as loving. It's fear and pride motivation. What will people say? I better walk this older woman across the street because people are watching. Or, hey, look at me. Look how great I am. That's self-centeredness. See, what's interesting is that fear and pride, self-centeredness, can motivate bad behavior, but it can also motivate good behavior. You don't get people out of their bad behavior by using self-centeredness to get them into good behavior. I hear that being taught in American pulpits today. They use fear and pride to motivate people. I hear that regularly. You need to know the difference. It's called moralism. It's moralism and so here's what that moralism sounds like too. Moralism has an attitude of superiority with a constant need to find fault, win arguments, prove that all opponents are not just mistaken but dishonest sellouts. It's based on verse 35 of our text. It says, therefore be careful lest the light in you be darkness, that's darkness. That's what moralism does. So moralism has an attitude of superiority. Hey, because I'm hitting the standard. If I were to ask a moralist, if they're a Christian, they go, "Yep, I'm hitting the standard. Sure am." And what happens is that it, as long as they're hitting the standard, whatever that standard is, but then when they're not hitting the standard, there's a little bit more despair because they're beating themselves up. Well, I'm not really living up to what I should be living up to. Wait, wait, wait. It's not based on your performance. So moralism has an attitude of superiority with a constant need to find fault when arguments and prove that all opponents are not just mistaken but dishonest sellouts because you're constantly comparing yourself with others. All of those losers over there, at least I'm better than them. I don't do all those things. Oh, isn't that horrible what they did? That's, that's an attitude of moralism. Moralism is also is joyless, next fill in the blank, joyless fear-motivated compliance to rules. It is, is bitter when life doesn't go well and has no assurance of the Father's love. They're not living in the reality of the Father's love. And it it's joyless, fear motivated compliance to rules. It's more have to. And it it's bitter when life doesn't go well. Okay, everybody look up here just for a second here. We've got a few more here. We'll be hitting the. The, the contrast to that, which is God's strategy, the gospel, God is our salvation, but you need to get this. I don't know how many times I've heard this. I've been around the church my whole life, and I've heard people say this to me. They go through some suffering, in the midst of the suffering, they go, I can't believe this is happening to me. I went to church, I read my Bible, I prayed, I dropped money in the box, and this is how God treats me? I deserve better than this. Whoa, 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 time out. That's moralism. You think you earned it? You think you deserve it? Do you have any idea what you have in Jesus? Man, you missed the big E on the eye chart. You missed Jesus. You missed what we have in the gospel. Listen to me. Even if your life goes to crap from this point on until you die and you go to be with God for all eternity, it doesn't matter because what you have in him is better by far and it will sustain you, and it will give you all that you need. There's no amount of success that can give to you what only Christ can give to you, and there's no amount of suffering that can ever take that away from you. It's absolutely spectacular what we have in Jesus. Oh, my goodness. So even if your life never goes any better as a result of following Christ, he is better than life. 63 three of psalm there's nothing better than knowing him walking with him experiencing him he gives you freedom to suffer well and people will look at your life and go wow how in the world do they do it and there will be a light shining forth from your life and it will be the gospel of our savior jesus christ because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world You have those resources available to you through this intimacy with God, and it's not anything you can earn. It's a gift. It's a gift. And so, God's strategy, the gospel, God is our salvation, verses 27 through 36 talking about that light in you. This is it. The gospel destroys pride because you were so sinful. Jesus had to die for you and it destroys fear because he loved you so much he wanted to die for you. So it destroys pride. I, I didn't earn this. I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. This is what I love. It, it levels the playing field. In front of the cross, it's level ground. There's no higher ground. You don't have a leg up on anybody. You're not more moral, and somehow he accepted you more than he accepts me or, or anybody else. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, that's Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 5.8. Absolutely amazing. Next point in your notes. The gospel gives you the power to admit what is wrong with you. Why? Because as a moralist, moralistic person, as a moralistic person, the very foundation of my identity is that I'm a good person, that I keep all the rules. So how can I admit that I have broken the rules when it undermines my identity? I struggled with that for years. I was such a moralist. I was so self-righteous. My wife would confront me on issues and I was very defensive. How dare you touch God's anointed? She's like, anointed? I'll give you anointed. It's like, okay. She didn't put up with it. I thank God for that, but it's like, whoa. I mean I couldn't admit that because I was a moralist. When you get when you realize that your identity is not in your having it all together. It's only when you know that you are radically and unconditionally accepted that you can admit your sinfulness. It's only when the foundation of of your self-image is that God loves me and and not that I'm a good person, can I admit my failures? To the degree I experience his unconditional love and acceptance of me is to the degree that I can admit I'm I can admit my sin. So, so this right here should be the safest place in the world where people come in and go, I'm jacked up. And we can say so are we come in and join the party as we look to jesus we are desperate for him See, and that's christianity he redeems us he restores us he loves us it ain't about us it's about him oh my goodness it's glorious it Brings such freedom here's a, another part of that freedom so the gospel gives you the power to get to the root of your problems I've used this example before, you're, de- you're depressed, so a moralist would say, well, you're depressed, but you're breaking the rules. You're breaking rules somewhere, so just repent. You're reading your Bible, you're praying, you're going to church. If you're not doing that, you're going to be depressed. I can see why you're depressed, because you're not doing those things. It's like, what the, what, 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 what? You're just focusing on the behavior. Remember, that's very reductionistic. There can be much more going on in a person's life. A relativist would respond like this. You just need to love and accept yourself. Just give yourself a really big hug in the morning in front of the mirror. And you need to start thinking positive thoughts. You need to deal with your emotions. Well, that's kind of reductionistic, too. It's much more than that. It's much deeper. In fact, the gospel, the gospel gives you the power to get to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is assuming that there's no physiological part. Something in my life has become more important to me than God, a pseudo-savior or a form of works righteousness or moralism that's more important to me than God. It could be your health, it could be your marriage, it could be your bank account, and that's collapsing and therefore it's creating the depression. Your relationship with God can never collapse. What you have in Him, it doesn't matter what's going on in creation. If you have the Creator, He will sustain you in the mess of life. So the question is, what is your heart's functional trust? What is your functional Lord and Savior? What's my real Savior? I love the story I heard a number of years ago. A despondent 16-year-old girl, she was wondering why guys wouldn't ask her out. No guy would even look at her, and so she went to a Christian counselor. The counselor sat down and talked to her for about 45 minutes to an hour, just talking about the innumerable, unsearchable riches of the gospel. She was a Christian. She understood that. She had heard it all before, and after about 45 minutes to an hour, she said, to him, what good is the gospel if a guy won't even look at you? And she missed the point, didn't she? She didn't understand the ravishing ramifications of the gospel. And all of us are like that 16-year-old girl because we look at our life sometimes. and well, What good is the gospel? I can't even get a job. Or this, my marriage crashed and burned. And what good is it? Wait, 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 wait. You don't even understand what you have in the gospel or otherwise you wouldn't be saying that. Because there's no... There's no guy looking at you. There's no marriage relationship. There's no amount of money in the bank account that can compare or can compete or can complete you like the gospel. It transforms your life. Number four, your life change, your morality is motivated by a heart smitten by the indispensable and sacrificial love of Christ. See, that's what's bedrock. Why do I not rubberneck? though I am tempted to do that, it's not fear or pride, it's man, my heart has been captivated by Christ and I don't want to trample on his love and wisdom and he knows what's best for me. He wants the best for me and I trust him in that and I'm gonna look to him. And so your morality is not because it profits you or makes you feel better, it's about him. See, here's what's interesting, now track with me here. The thing that most assures you that God will never reject you Because of what Jesus has done is the thing that most convicts you. Let me explain that. You are not convicted of sin because you fear God will cast you off, but because you fear trampling on the love of the one who will never cast you off. If the reason you don't want to sin is because you're afraid God will cast you off, then you are motivated by self-centeredness, not God-centeredness. If you know what he has done for you at infinite cost, he has put you in relationship with him so that you will never be cast off, then your motivation when you sin is not about you but him. You want him. So the thing that most assures you that God will never reject you because of what Jesus has done is the thing that most convicts you. When you are convicted of sin in the gospel way, it drives you toward God because you don't want to trample on His love and wisdom. You have intimacy with Him. You don't want anything to to compromise that. You want to honor Him. When you're convicted of sin in a moralistic way, it drives you away from God. Here's the last point it replaces self centeredness with a blessed self forgetfulness. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less because you're captivated with the beauty and the glory of Christ. You've never been more free. You've never been more satisfied than what you have in him. And so you're living for his glory. That's the light in us, shining bright, the gospel of the glory of Christ. Two quotes here before we take communion. This is from John Newton, Amazing Grace. Our pleasure and our glory... Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. His friend William Cooper put it this way, to see the law of Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. That's the gospel. Three stations, find your way up, grab both communion elements, take them back to your seat, and I will walk us through the process here. Communion is a celebration of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to Himself by sending His Son to die in our place for our sins. And all who repent and believe have everlasting life. Oh, my goodness. The everlasting life, sins forgiven, past, present, future. There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Not only that, he indwells us with his presence. We have his presence. We have intimacy with God. We have his presence. And we're lavished by his love as his child. And not only does that give us everything we need throughout this life, but, man, we have the guarantee to be with him for all eternity. When we take our last breath here, we take our first breath to be with him for all eternity. The best is yet to come. That's the Christian life. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Even in the midst of our sin and suffering, He's there for us. He loves us. I was, I was thinking about this. What would be a good way to kind of wrap this up? In the, as I was praying and talking to the Lord about this, I believe that the Lord put on my heart John 8, verses 1 through 11. I love the story. It's the woman who was caught in adultery. Jesus was teaching in the temple. Pharisees, moralists, show up with the woman caught in a very act of adultery, drag her in there, and they say, Jesus, the law of Moses says that someone's caught in adultery. We're supposed to stone her. What do you say? They did that to test him. I love Jesus. I love the way he responds to us. He just kind of goes and begins to doodle in the sand, and they continue to pressure him and press him, and so he responds just with very few words. He says, he says, he is without sin, throw the first stone. Immediately, immediately, from the oldest to the youngest, they begin to exit. They realize, oh, wow, we're just as guilty. I love that because he, he levels the playing field. The ground before the cross is level ground. There's no levels of morality. We're For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what he did. He, he upholds her digni- uh, dignity, really, in the midst of these folks that are pointing fingers of accusation. And then they all exit. It's just Jesus and this woman. He walks over to the woman and says, where are your accusers? And she says, I have none. And what, he's, what he says is most, so profound. He says, and neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, notice the order of that. He doesn't say, go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. See, that's moralism. But he says, neither do I condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. See, see it's, it's the verdict, the verdict comes before the performance, and the performance is based on, on the verdict. If the performance isn't very good, you've got to get back to the verdict. You're not living in the reality of that you're a child of God, that He loves you. You're not hearing ring deep in your soul, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And to the degree you begin to live in the reality of that, oh my goodness, believe me, that will change you. That will change you. It will change the way you respond. You will begin to want to live for his glory unlike ever before. And so really it's understanding justification, sanctification. Justification means, means our declared righteousness before God. That's a gift. We stand right before him. Sanctification means our gradual growing righteousness. So the one is positional and the more we understand the positional righteousness the more practically that will begin to be worked out in our life as we live as we live for his glory. God, thank you. Oh my goodness, the gift of salvation through the sacrificial indispensable love of our savior Jesus. It's amazing. Thank you for the freedom. Thank you for the satisfaction that we have in you. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 through 26, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together in remembrance of him and what he's done for us. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. Man, that's, that's some heavy stuff we talked about today. I love you guys. And uh, you guys uh, hung in there. It was, it was a long one, and it's, it's a, it was a tough one, and yet this is the stuff that transforms our lives. I mean, we're encountering the living Lord and Savior through His Word as we study week in and week out. It will transform your life, and I'm so thankful for the gospel. In our lives. So the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, a peace that goes beyond understanding, regardless of what's going down in your life. You can have a peace in your heart because you have peace with the eternal God of the galaxies. He will never leave you, he will never forsake you. Nothing can separate you from his love because of what he did for us on the cross. And I pray that for you and over you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys.